This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Tommy John. Tommy John makes underwear that keeps everything in place, whichever way a man moves. Let you guess what I'm talking about there. For 20% off your first purchase, go to TommyJohn.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. That's TommyJohn.com slash fool, promo code fool. 20% off. Not bad. Very nice. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by my good cop partner, Robert Brokamp. He's personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool and advisor for Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Behave, everyone out there. I don't know, is that what good cops say? Or is that say no, that a, good cop, a good cop would be like, I'm on your side. I think That's you're doing right. great. You okay. complete me. Well, I don't know that a cop would say that, but... Maybe you better be the bad cop. I want to be the bad cop. No one should. I should just shouldn't be a cop. <laughs> That'd be a super great cop. The other voice you heard was everyone's favorite mutual fund manager. It's Bill Mann, chief investment officer for Full Funds and Full Wealth. He's back, but not on his own accord. Cue the law and order. Dong dong. Bro and I brought him in. We cuffed him to this desk and we told him it was time to confess. And confess he will with three secrets of the mutual fund industry. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Our question today comes from Oswaldo. And Oz writes, I just finished listening to your interview with Morgan Housel. And in one of the biases, he mentions that you should be comparing your returns against the S&P 500 as a suggested benchmark. I hear this very often from other money people, and I often wonder the following. How do you define the right benchmark? Or more importantly, shouldn't your benchmark be what you need to obtain to achieve your goals? And then he talks a little bit about how he's created his own sort of benchmark. He wants to know, am I doing something wrong by disregarding the S&P or other benchmarks and simply creating my own benchmark based on what I can actually control, which is how much I put aside? So yeah, benchmarks. It's a little more controversial than I thought. <laughs> kind of a hot topic issue, huh? Uh, there may be a fight. There may be a fight. Uh, well, I, first of all, I would say that it, um, you should most certainly not be comparing everything you do in terms of investing to the S and P 500. S and P 500 is large cap U.S. stocks. So if you're going to invest internationally, if you're going to invest in smaller companies, if you're going to focus on a sector like real estate or technology, you have to find a different benchmark. I would say. I think it's actually. Um, I think it's actually okay with your equities. To track against the S and P 500 for the very reason that it is so easy to buy an S and P vehicle, an S and P driven ETF, an index fund, and because it's so easy, I think that it's really okay to say, okay, I I, I could do that and not have to think about it anymore. But I do want to know what the value of my thinking about it is. Now, I think the thing that people do wrong is they say, okay, I'm going to take everything in my portfolio or all of my investments and I'm going to I'm going to compare those to the S&P 500 so that would include real estate that would include precious metals that's a little bit crazy because those play a different purpose like you know there is almost no financial advisor who would say you should have 100% of your money in equities and so therefore you shouldn't have 100% of your money or your assets tracked against an equity driven Index. So, a reporter did his research and found out that had Trump just invested his money in the stock market, he would be doing so much better and how he brags about all of his wealth. But really, he hasn't done that well. Um, but then some other people chimed in and said that's unfair to compare his wealth to the S&P. Yeah. Um, so stop picking on him. Yeah, he didn't. Almost none of that money, as far as I know, was in stocks. I mean, he is a real estate developer. So. 
He could have lived a life a life of luxury, apparently, and have done and done better by putting it all in the market. But you know, who would have recommended that? That's what he did. What he did to start with. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's funny. I mean, I think it's, it's entertaining. It's, it's a good reason. It is that is a great ad hominem article right there. But I don't, you know, I, 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 I don't think that that is particularly fair. There is a question of like why even bother with a benchmark. So one would be along the lines of what Bill is saying. You could just invest in the S P five hundred very easily in very low cost way. So you might want to use that benchmark is because I'm going to do something a little different and just pay attention and say like, was that the right thing to do or should I just give it up and stick with the S P five hundred. The other reason to have a benchmark is to compare similar strategies, like similar mutual funds. Like, I want a small cap value mutual fund. Well, I've got to look at them and say, all right, this one is beating the benchmark, or it's not. You have to evaluate and make an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. So it really depends yeah. on why you're looking at the benchmark. I, I think, think it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think it's much more important when you're talking about when you're talking about funds. You're talking about any type of an, an investment vehicle that you have an appropriate benchmark. And I also think you know, and and again, going back on what I said before about just that the S and P is actually okay. You do have to make sure that you've got the right time frames. Like you don't look if you buy a bunch of Chinese companies and it trails against the S and P for a quarter, that's not relevant. You're talking about over a period of time that needs to be long enough. You know, so like for example, emerging market stocks have underperformed fairly dramatically in the last year, really over the last, you know, the the last three years. If you were investing in emerging markets, would you say, well, I have been terrible at it because I trailed the SP five hundred? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So with the long enough time, with the long enough time horizon, the S and P is fine for everything. If with shorter time horizons, I would pick something that is much more relevant. So is it okay that Oz kind of made his own personal benchmark? Yeah, yeah. Fun company. You're giving him that. permission. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sure. Just don't change. Just don't say, "Well, I was bad at that, so why don't I just change my benchmark?" <laughs> I, so, need a, I need a better benchmark that right. makes me look smart. Yeah. So I mean, that's 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 literally it. If it's you know if it's if it's accurate, and it measures in a long enough period of time, and it's not changed, it's good. All right, make your own benchmark. Go Why right not? ahead. <laughs> Mine is seven. <laughs> and are you crushing it? Crushing it. Thanks to Tommy John for sponsoring today's show. Tommy John, you maybe not heard of them, but they make men's underclothes that stay put. So, what do we mean? We're talking about socks that don't fall down, underwear that doesn't bunch, and undershirts that don't untuck. Bro, you actually got to try some Tommy Johns. What'd you think? <laughs> I did. Yeah, well, I'm not known for spending a lot of money on clothes, so this is my first experience with premium and under things, <laughs> and it was it was quite something. Um, they do everything they say they're going to do. <laughs> this is so weird. We've had a lot of weird conversations on this show, most that get edited out, but talking about your underwear is it's probably a line we haven't crossed well, here, before. Here, let me show you. Nah, I'm just kidding. No, let me no. go get HR really quickly. But you like no. it? They they, yes. they sound really great. They do, and the material is definitely high quality. Like maybe a Christmas present. Oh yeah, definitely. No, anyone anyone you give these to, they will appreciate them. It is not your your cotton boxers that you bought at Walmart. That's for sure. <laughs> and I know about those boxers you bought at Walmart. All right. As a special offer to our <laughs> listeners, you can get 20% off your first order by going to tommyjohn.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. Plus, you'll get free U.S. shipping on any order over $50. That's tommyjohn.com slash fool, promo code fool. 
Thanks again to Tommy John for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Bill Mann, you have been a mutual fund manager for how long now? Six years. Six years. And before that, you had a 16-year career. Well, maybe, yeah. 10-year career. That's bad math. Yeah, That is bad math. (laughs) See, this is why you're the mutual fund manager and not me. Bill Mann, you're 77 years old. (laughs) So, 10 years at The Motley Fool uh, investing, advising people for a few of our newsletter services. And then you made the jump over to our mutual funds. Yeah. Yeah, jumped in and started managing money for real. And we have three mutual funds. I can't really talk a lot about them yeah. because it's a sister they exist. company. They exist. There's a website. You can learn more at foolfunds.com. Uh, so, but one thing that we do, well, one thing that we talk about when we talk about our mutual funds is that we created them to be somewhat different and yeah. different from the industry, different in fees and different in other things. And so, I don't want to make it sound like you're you're um, handcuffed to this desk because you've done something wrong, but you are here to kind of confess about some of the the things that maybe people aren't aware of it in is, the mutual fund industry. It is very funny because we will go to conferences and people will say, oh, we didn't know you had funds. I thought you hated funds. And we'd kind of say, yeah, maybe we kind of still do, but yeah. <laughs> Except we just, hate, we just hate most of them. But look here. Well, I mean, I think that's true of a lot of things. I mean, it, it is it is very easy to generalize, and I think it is very easy to say that a lot of mutual funds have not been great vehicles for doing what they're supposed to do, which you would think is enriching their Make shareholders. Make me money! Make me money. I mean, you money. I mean, <laughs> fund managers as a group tend to do okay because you know that's fixed but you know right and as a group the investors in the funds don't um don't get as much as they hope to get so i think it makes sense yeah and there's a lot of structural reasons that 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 that's so and there's some things that you can really blame the system on you know i mean there there's some reasons why mutual funds are you know it's it, it's it's hard to make a buck with them but yep. yeah all right, well, let's get to your first confession. Bill Mann, what is your first confession for the mutual fund industry? So, my first confession is actually, that follows right upon what I was just saying, is that is that mutual funds are very, very heavily dependent on what's called non-fixed capital, which is kind of a brutal you know, podcast word. It basically means that every day, people can put money in or they can take money out. And basically, what that means is when people put money into your funds, Effectively, you're selling a little teeny bit of everything that's in the fund because you're diluting it. So, like for example, let's just say a mutual fund company makes a brilliant, brilliant investing decision on day one with a million dollars, but then five years later, the fund has five billion dollars in it, and if they haven't put any more money into that investment idea, it's worthless to them, even if it's gone up twenty, fifty, a hundred times in value. So, you're very much dependent on people putting money in and taking money out. And really, I think one of the core jobs of a mutual fund manager who believes in it, you know, in doing well with his, uh, for his clients is making sure that they are aligned before they come in. And how do you mean aligned? Meaning, if you think that, you know, if, if I say that I'm going to be able to, you know, be able to track the market and I'm going to, you know, every time the market goes up, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something. And every time the market goes down, I'm going to do something. That you know, the type of investor who's looking for that sort of thing is great. But if I 
uh, say, look, my job is to go out and find really great companies, and 10 years from now, I believe they will be higher, then those ups and downs are things that I'm not really trying to account for. You know, I'm just trying to find great things. Right. So, someone who panics when the market drops 15% is probably not well aligned. You know, with with a fund manager who you know who invests like that, right? But then you and the other shareholders, you as the manager, kind of have to pay for that, right? Because if the market's going down, you'd love to be buying more. But if a bunch of shareholders are saying, "No, I want my money back," you're forced to sell at a time when you would prefer to be buying. Yeah, that's exactly that. That's exactly right, and that's why that that's why. And you hear investment managers say this a lot, and this is a, this is actually a very admirable thing for them to say is that one of the greatest gifts they can have is well-aligned investors. You know, because it's right. Because you you know, with if you have well-aligned investors. They're much more likely to be sending you money at the time when you want it, and they're much more likely to be taking money away when you aren't finding too many great ideas. Right, and all that selling and buying can be an extra cost to the shareholders. It can be extra tax consequences, so it helps the shareholders to have other shareholders that are similarly minded. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. right, Let's move on to your next confession. Was I good at confessing? Was that okay? Did yeah. I confess? Yeah. I feel like I've gotten something off my chest. You got so. two more confessions more like to a, go. Wait till you hear the penance, though. That's right. Uh, this feels more like a confession all than says <laughs> the guy who was studying to be a priest at one point in his life. Yeah, you're gonna have to take on that one. I can't. So, help um, my next confession is that there are lots of hidden costs in in mutual funds that you have to pay attention to. The biggest one we just mentioned a second ago, which is taxes. When you buy a mutual fund, let's say you buy it and you do nothing over a 10-year period, with a stock, that means you don't have any taxes to pay. But with funds, the, the shareholder gets a tax bill every year based on the activity of the fund. So even if you do nothing, if I do lots of things and I'm not tax efficient about it, you get capital gains and you pay taxes on those capital gains. And it's not tracked. And unfortunately, a lot of fund managers, therefore, don't spend much time thinking about it. I happen to take taxes very seriously and I happen to take those costs very seriously, but it's a very much of a hidden cost. Another cost is the spreads, which is if you went to, you know, if you want to buy a stock right now, it's got a bid and an ask. And that means that you can buy at the bid and sell at the ask. I'm dyslexic. Is that right? I don't know. I never pay attention to this. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I'm seriously dyslexic. No, that's okay. yeah. So no, it's so funny because you and I are in the same thing. Every time I talk about the bid ask, I have to think, have to right, think which one it. is right. Exactly. So, so basically, maybe we just cut just say the yeah. We can wait. We, yeah. we, we can. It's the difference between the price the price you would sell it at and the price you would buy it at. Exactly. And there's a spread between the two. And if you are buying, you're buying at the higher price. And if you're selling, you're selling at the lower price. And there's a gap, and it's tiny. But the more times you transact, the more times. You, the shareholder, are paying. I don't right. think I understand this. So basically, so if I imagine like the stock market, and there's this right. one person who's like, I would like to sell a share of Apple, and I'm like, oh, I would like to buy a share of Apple. Yeah. And they're like, we're going to sell it to you for five dollars. Yeah. And I'm like, awesome, I'll take all of it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, right. Apple's way more than that, but yeah. they're like, I would like, to, I'm going to sell it for five dollars, and I'm like, well, I don't, I'm going to buy it at like. Four dollars and ninety nine cents, yes, something like that. Because the per- there's someone in the together. middle of that con- of that transaction, the market maker or the market, and that's essentially their profit. If you think the stock is an inventory, I'm going to buy it 
the market maker as a lower price mm-hmm. and then sell it at a higher price. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like going to a. It's because like, there's a middleman. So it's right. the middleman middle gets a cut. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's nothing nefarious about this. I mean, you know, you, you, the middleman is providing a service. Yeah. So it's fine for them to get a cut. And the more liquid the stocks are, the narrower that spread is. But there's still a spread. And every time you transact, you're paying it. Right. You, know, you don't write a check. It doesn't come out of your pocket or even, you know, you know, the change in your couch, but you pay it. Right. And related to that, most people look at the expense ratio of a mutual fund to get an idea of the costs. But the commissions that funds pay to make these trades are not captured in that expense ratio. That's right. Um, yeah. So you're actually the expense ratio doesn't capture all the ways you're paying money. Yeah. So how do you how do you find out all the ways you're paying money? Also, we should mention twelve B one fees, which are yeah. which are awful. But yeah. how do we how do we find out about all the other ones? The best way for that one is to pay attention to the turnover of the fund, which is the percent of the fund each year or in the past year, I should say that you know that has been transacted. Right. There's so a, if it's a fifty, if you have a turnover ratio of fifty percent. Theoretically, that means half of what you have in your portfolio wasn't there a year ago. You've switched out half of your portfolio. Yeah. Um, so a lower turnover, like ten or twenty percent, that's really low. That right. means you, you're still holding eighty percent of what you had a year ago. Yeah. Higher than that, that means that fund manager is doing a lot of buying and selling, paying a lot of commissions, and generating a lot of tax consequences. And the awesome thing, this is—I mean, this is this 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 is really great. Sometimes when you see a fund that has a turnover ratio of like 160%, which is not uncommon. We've seen it, 160%. So that means that the average holding roughly is eight months old. But you go and you read their prospectus and they'll say say things like, We're in it for the long term. You know, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) there's no such thing. It does not it does not match. And that's actually, you know, that's actually a really interesting key, you know, a key thing to look at. Does that match what they you know what they say. What's yeah. your turnover rate, Bill? About twenty six percent. Yeah, it's actually a little higher than it should be, just because every year we do try to make sure that uh, that that we are tax efficient. So sometimes we will we will move things to you know to do some tax tax loss, you know, some tax loss harvesting. We call it things yeah. that we you know that we'll buy back because it is it's really our goal each year to provide a zero tax bill. I'm not saying. We do it or will do it, but we we definitely try to. Yeah. Final point on that: there was a study published in the Financial Analyst Journal in 2013, and that found that looked at the hidden costs, and certainly there is a relationship between funds that have high costs and they subsequently have lower performance than the funds that have low costs. So it really does matter. It really does. Yeah. All right, Bill. What is your final confession? I'm going to confess on behalf of my industry. This is this is a global confession. A lot of people who believe that they're getting active, actively managed portfolios in, in mutual funds are getting something that is much more like an index fund than they might think. But paying way more money for it. Of course, that's how it fund. works. Yes, yes. So if you think about if you think about risks, right? So your risk as someone who invests in a mutual fund is way different from the mutual fund manager's risk. The mutual fund manager basically doesn't want to get fired. Now, how do you not get fired? Well, you don't get fired, first and foremost, by not really, really trailing the benchmark. The easiest way to do that is to have your portfolio look as much like your benchmark as possible. Probably for years, that was a great idea. But now, with you know, the advent of index funds and exchange-traded funds that match things, it basically means you're paying a lot more for the same exact 
knowledge. I mean, you know, and it's not even knowledge. I mean, if you're if you're if if you are a closet indexer, and that's what you know, that's the not so nice term for uh, for for people who do this, and you are tracking the S and P five hundred uh, as your benchmark, you have to own Apple, and you have to own a lot of it. But not only do you have to own Apple, but you don't have to spend a second thinking about it. You don't care if Apple is going to release, you know, the you know whether the Apple Watch is going to be big or or the the Apple TV is going to be big. You just know that Apple has to be a fairly large percentage of your portfolio. Otherwise, you are taking a risk. So, uh, you know, so it is. I don't think that this is great. Um, I would hate to be at a you know at, at at a fund company where this was you know where where this was something that was widely accepted. There is something out there that's called active share, which is a way that you can tell how different a portfolio is from its benchmark. And there's academic research out there that shows that the higher a fund's active share, not you know not not on a one to one basis, but they tend to outperform over time. That it is a very good sign of a fund manager who's actually doing the work them you know the, themselves. So if the the contents of my mutual fund are surprisingly very similar to the benchmark then naturally I should probably just be investing in that benchmark. It would suggest that you know their risks and your you know are not necessarily aligned with your risks. Right. Worth my worth my money. Yeah. There, I, this study I just read today actually one of the studies about active share and it's and one of the findings is the funds that have the lowest active share underperform because they are essentially index funds but charging higher fees. You just yeah. can't beat an index fund doing that. Well, exactly, right. because you're going to lose by the you're going to lose by the amount of the fees. So you're almost guaranteed to trail by, you know, say for example, 0.8% per year. And that doesn't sound like a lot. You know, that's 99.2 cents versus a dollar, but you know, if you compound that out, it matters. It I mean, really, really does. To the tune of tens of thousands of dollars, it really does matter. Yeah, it really yeah. does. So I would, you know, I I would not want to be, you know, in a shop where closet indexing is a thing. Hey, how do I find out what the active share is for my mutual fund? Well, unfortunately, because the research is relatively new and 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 somewhat controversial, at least there are some people who who have some doubts about it. It's not publicly available, so I think one thing you can do is when you go to the fund on Morningstar.com, look it up, go to the Portfolio tab. It will say how much that fund deviates from the benchmark by sector, size, valuation. So you can get an idea um, of how different it is that way. Certainly, if it is lining up very closely to the benchmark, it's probably I'm going to say it's probably not worth it. All right, Bill. Well, I want to thank you for being an informant on the mutual fund industry, revealing some of the the crimes and misdemeanors therein. I'm glad to hear that you are innocent of these. <laughs> I think I think we can agree that you're free to go. Uh, yeah, innocent of these things. We'll see about the other things. <laughs> the other things we got to talk a little bit more. All right, that's all for this week. I want to thank Bill again for joining us. Thanks for making the trek up to the fourth floor here. If you want to learn more about Bill and Motley Fool Funds, you can head to foolfunds.com. That's F-O-O-L-F-U-N-D-S.com. And if you have any burning questions for us in the meantime, you can go to answers at fool.com. The show is edited dangerously by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.